Welcome to Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on spirometry and respiratory care. Your hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager, and Jance Lanier, National Sales Manager and Respiratory Therapist for Vitalgraph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Both Jansen and Mark interviewed Dr. Jane Francis Namatovo. She's a regarded primary care physician and lecturer at the Department of Family Medicine, School of Medicine, and College of Health Sciences at Makarere University, Kampala. We discussed the topic of chronic cough from her home country in Uganda, Africa. Well, welcome, Jane, to our podcast. Thank you. Well, please give us a little background on yourself, education, experience, and current responsibilities, and tell us where you're located. Okay, thank you very much. My name is Jane Francis Namatogu. I am from Uganda in East Africa, and East Africa is in the middle of the African continent. So I come from a town called Kampala. I did my education in Kampala, both undergraduate and postgraduate. And in my postgraduate, I did family medicine and community practice. And the training is a postgraduate degree, which we do for three years. Thereafter, I joined the uh, university, Makerere University, Department of Family Medicine, as a teaching assistant. And uh, over the years, I have moved from teaching assistant to a lecturer. And I've been in the department for 15 years now. My responsibilities include uh, mentorship for both undergraduate and postgraduate students. My current responsibility, a lecturer in that department and also a coordinator for postgraduate students. Wonderful. What are the most common causes of chronic cough in a non-smoker? So in this setting, the common causes of chronic cough in this environment include asthma. Then we also have tuberculosis and then we have COPD. And then we also have a bronchectasis and chronic bronchitis in children. There are few patients we also get with oesophageal reflux, which may not necessarily be coming from the respiratory system, but they do have chronic cough. They present with chronic cough. Those are the commonest that we do have. So who's affected most by chronic cough and what are the treatments? So most of the patients that we do have for asthma, the children are more than the adults. Then for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, it's mainly still the adults compared to the chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases mainly in the adults. And then tuberculosis is both the adults and the children, but the children are mainly those who are predisposed. They have a member of the family who may have tuberculosis. For the adults, it's mainly those who are immunocompromised. It could be from different issues. It could be diet. It could be HIV. It could be either they are on anti-cancer treatment, but also those who may have immunocompromised due to uh, anything else in their day-to-day living. But uh, tuberculosis is for both the children and the adults. Osophageal reflex is mainly among the adults. So when we come to treatments, for asthma, we have inhalers, and then we also have oral medication. 
if the inhalation is not possible. And commonly here in our setting, the inhalers are expensive for the patients. So we find that they normally start with the oral medication. But if they are able to buy the inhalers, then they do have the inhalers. And then occasionally we give them parental treatment. That's in asthma. For children, most of the health facilities are able to do nobilization for them so that they can be able to stabilize. And But most of the time, they are sent home on oral medication. Then for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, we emphasize stopping the aggravating factors. And then the, the, and the aggravating factors can be varied depending on where the patient is coming from or where they're situated. So uh, in the history, one is able to, to see what is mainly getting the patient into the exacerbations. And then we also help them to improve their exercise tolerance and also improve generally their health to, so that they can reduce on the exacerbations for those who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. For tuberculosis, we normally start them on anti-TB treatment, which includes rifampicin, ethambutol, pyrazinamide. So they do the regimen. For in the first two weeks, they are normally contagious. So we emphasize that they isolate from the family members or they wear masks to ensure that they don't infect other family members. And then after the two weeks, as they continue with the treatment, for the six months, and then they are able to uh, live freely because then after the two weeks, they are not contagious. For esophageal reflux, we reflux, we normally give them antacids and then also look through their day-to-day -day lives to see what is aggravating the problem. And most commonly, patients would be taking drinks with a lot of spices or food with a lot of spices, among other things. So we try as much as possible to go through the history and see what could be the aggravating factors making the patient get the esophageal reflex, reflux. And most of them are unaware, so we try to help to educate them that that is bringing them problems so that they are able to stop. And the, the commonest drink that is seen to cause problems is ginger which they put in warm water um, in addition to other spices. And it was commonest around the time of COVID because the belief was that as you get most of these spicy products, they would be able to protect you from having severe COVID symptoms. That's interesting. Thanks for letting us know that. We know that chronic coughing can cause damage throughout the body. Can you explain some of that to us, where it can cause damage as well as what it indicates? So the damage can be, the damage of chronic cough can be in different forms. And one of them is chest pain because of that continuous coughing. The other one is both the back and abdominal muscles may start having pain, so the patient will present with the pain in the muscles. And then the other that is also common is hemoptysis, and that's 
normally common in tuberculosis because the patient would have been coughing for quite some time and probably because they have not had appropriate treatment, they are continuing with destruction. The bacilli is continuing the destruction in their lungs, but also the constant coughing would be responsible for rupture of some of the blood vessels, the, the small blood vessels, and therefore the blood is being coughed up with the sputum. Those are the main damages that we are experiencing among the patients with chronic cough. So what is chronic cough syndrome? So chronic cough syndrome is a cough that the patient may have had for more than six weeks or longer with more than one cause, but also affecting more than the structural component of the lungs, but also the lung parenchyma. So we, we do have uh, the patients will have destruction of both the bronchi and then the alveoli, uh, unlike in Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease where the destruction is mainly in the alveoli. It is common here among especially the old women who have been using the traditional methods of, of smoke that is inhaled and damages the structures as it is inhaled for that long. And then other predisposing that would include other environments that have a lot of Chemicals, especially in the urban settings where we have industrialization, which has also contributed to that destruction. So you find that some of the patients would come with the chronic cough syndrome. Wonderful. Why is self-management important for patients with chronic cough? So self-management is important for the patients because much as they come to the health facilities to get medication, they also need to have day-to-day -day ways to partner with the family members in managing themselves. It means that as the health provider, you have to give the patient enough information first to keep so that they can keep themselves safe after the episode of, of what they have come for. And that they can only do through the self-management that they have acquired or learned at the health facility. So it's important for themselves, but also for their family members, because they also need to keep the family members safe. Also, since they are chronic diseases, the patient is going to have that disease with them and therefore they need to constantly know how best to manage themselves so that they can carry on with the chronic illness so that they are not always in hospitals with emergencies following the chronic illness that they have. So how can self-management support be put into action? Can you give us scenarios? So if you look at, for instance, the asthma patients, or patients with COPD. Once they learn about their disease, and that learning they, they can only do from their primary care provider or from their doctor or from their family doctor. Then, so the primary care person starts, when they have started the conversation, it helps to support the patient to be able to, to support themselves. And this 
conversation could be started by a doctor, it could be a clinical officer, whoever is giving this management would be would have that responsibility to start the conversation. And uh, most of the time, the conversation needs to start from what probably has brought on the symptoms, and that would include the aggravating factors, which can be picked from the history as you talk to the patient to try and find out what kind of way they live, what they do, so that you are able to look through their environment or through their context and see what could be causing problems. But in this conversation, there are many other things we can talk about which are practical in the first place before, as you diagnose, you may talk about the things that could have predisposed the patient to this exacerbation because some of the diseases they will have for a long time, but what could have brought that on? And that conversation will help the patient to to improve the way they manage themselves. The other practical things that are important to talk about to help the person put in action is when you talk about the issues of diet, you need to break it down, looking at what they have in their diet already or in their community so that you are not hypothetical. So you first ask them what they commonly eat, what is available in their setting, and then start from there so that you can be able to make sure the diet is is balanced enough to cater for what you are looking at. In our setting, we have a lot of carbohydrates, so the patient will normally talk about those first, but we also have the other items which would be beneficial like vegetables and fruits, which you can only emphasize after you have found what they can access. So that's the practicality. You need to first ask them what they can access and then make suggestions and also give the value of them having that diet that you want to advocate for or you want to promote in the situation they are in. The other issue that is practical is when you're talking about exercise, because it is important in managing to improve or to train lung, their lung capacity because of the chronic cough that they are having. You have to look through what the patient is able to do depending on the age and where they are living and what kind of activities they do, their day-to-day -day activities. Because if you make it a blanket statement of please let's start maybe doing exercises, then they will not be able to to break it down for themselves to see what's feasible. But when you they come for the next visit, they will definitely not have done. So it is important to also look through and look at the age of the patient, look at what's feasible and what the patient does so that you can talk about the, the issues of exercise in context of what the patient is presenting with. You look at the practical ones. The other issue is when we have patients that have been prescribed, especially the oral medication, we find that patients just carry on with the prescription even past the date. When the symptoms come back, they just go along and carry the prescription to the pharmacies to just get a refill. So one of the things that still we need to do is patient education on self-medication, but most importantly, how they would affect them if they are kept on that medication for a long time. Because sometimes our patients are not aware and then they would come with other symptoms. That's another issue in the clinical setting. 
we need to talk about the medications, the effects of, of the medications that we have given, especially if taken without prescriptions. Then dose completion is another challenge. For patients, for example, those with the tuberculosis, um, efforts had been, was started with the directly observed therapy where the patient would have a body where this person would be suggested by the patient who has the tuberculosis and then when the patient gets the medication from the health facility, this body's responsibility is to ensure that the person has taken that medication at that hour. It was successful, but rolling it out was not that easy. So, but we always try as much as possible to get somebody in the family who would kind of remind this patient because they are going to take this regimen, the rifampicin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol for a very long time. So they need somebody who will be able to help them go through that so that we do not create resistance and also not have progress in treatment. So that is one avenue. The other one is to work it out with the patient and get a constant time which the patient thinks would be able to remember to take the medication and then use that. But it's not that easy. So most of the time, it is important to have a next of kin or a family member who would be able to help the patient to get through this. And that person would definitely come with, with the patient at the clinic to get the medication, especially in the first days when they've diagnosed. The other avenue which we use is when the patients come at the unit, when sometimes there are many, to have them do group counseling. And the group counseling, it allows for the patients to they ask questions about the illness or the different illnesses, especially which are under chronic cough, but also other, other aspects of managing themselves while they are on medication or while they are living with this ailment. And that one is commonly done by the nurses, but also some few counselors. Some few health facilities may have counselors who are able to, to do the group counseling. So those are the main ones. We do not have proper rules on if I have a prescription, I, if I can go to the pharmacy, I can prescribe for myself. So we do not yet have proper rules to self-prescription though that would be something that would help in improving the issues of having under treatment of chronic cough and also late diagnosis of some of the causes of the chronic cough. Wonderful. So we are an international podcast, and I know that a lot of our listeners are curious how COVID impacted Africa and so forth. So it's two-part. How are you guys doing now? And are you seeing effects of COVID treating the chronic cough? Yes. COVID presented a lot of uh, new aspects to chronic cough because most times for the patients who would get the chronic cough during this time would end up having late presentation to the health facilities because of fear that they would brand them COVID or they would test and find that they have COVID and therefore the sanctions would be different. But at the same time, therefore, you, you had patients coughing for a longer time than they should be. But also because COVID was the in thing and sometimes for some of the primary care facilities, there was not enough diagnostics for COVID. You would find that every person who would come in with cough would be, some of them would be misdiagnosed. 
with COVID, yet they are having other causes of the chronic cough, for instance, those with tuberculosis, unless somebody said they were they were having already hemoptysis or they were coughing out blood, then some the care provider would think twice before branding them that COVID patients. But we had a lot of misdiagnosis because everybody who was coughing for a long time would be quickly given the diagnosis without having to think twice, especially in areas where we didn't have enough diagnostics for COVID-19. But we also have patients who have had COVID and they have continued to have cough and chest pain because as a post-COVID symptoms. First, those ones are quite difficult to treat because they also have they are also worried that either they will have COVID, even when they are tested and it's negative, they still believe that the next episode will definitely start with, with them. So there are those who would still really have post-COVID symptoms and they, including a chronic cough, they would have a lot of chest pain. Mainly those three were our challenges with the COVID. Great. Well, this has been very fascinating to see how you treat your patients down in your region. I think that this is definitely a problem all over the world. And with COVID coming in, it's hard to diagnose and make sure that the person doesn't have a chronic cough as compared to COVID. And that's kind of a fine line. So hopefully our listeners have enjoyed it. Do you have anything else to add to our podcast or say to our listeners? Given the fact that most of our chronic coughs, we do have some of the risk factors that are common here in our setting are infections. Mm -hmm. And then we also have few, we do not have much, but we have uh, some people who do uh, tobacco smoking. And this is more the, the crude tobacco compared to the processed. So the damage may be a little more faster than the processed tobacco. So we have a few patients who come in with cancer of the lungs. There are not many, but we do still have. So as a, a provider, you have to have suspicion index for cancer of the lungs because those would pre present also with chronic cough and sometimes hemoptysis, among other complaints. We have also outdoor air pollution, which we have already talked about, and the pollutants are getting um, more because of the industrialization and urbanization. We seem to find a lot of fires out in the west part of our country that has been affecting a lot of different people throughout the country, and, and the environment has really presented itself as more of a problem in, in a lot of our health here in this country. Do you see that yes. the same there in South Africa? Sure. Here in Uganda, we, we do still have lots of, the pollution is now coming up. Uh, and we also, in the villages, we have, we, we also have the issues of biomass fuel, which mm -hmm. also creates problems, which is not common in other parts of, for example, in South Africa, that may not be common, but in the rest of, in the East African region, it is common. Good to know. Good to know. Well, Jane, we really appreciate being on our podcast today. And again, thank you for being on and making that extra effort. I know the time difference is quite a bit between us and it's morning here and you're, you're ending your day. So thank you again for being on. You're welcome. Thank you too. You've been listening to Excel with Vitagraph. Your hosts are Mark Russell and Jane Salinier. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. 
please follow us for upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.